What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Conspira Normal. We're continuing our episodes leading up to the end of the year. And we've got, uh, well, a man that really needs no introduction at this point, because he's been on Conspiracy Normal a lot. And this time, we usually have him on for every book that he does. Uh, but this time, this book is this book is a magnum opus. or It's rather two books. So we've got Joshua Cutchin, and we're going to talk more about some of the themes and ideas that are in Ecology of Souls, with a little bit from Volume 1, but mostly we'll talk about stuff from volume two so josh welcome back to conspiracy normal man i have so much adam sane in my life my cup over i know <laughs> oh, i no. know yeah tell me about it I, i've seen i've seen hey I've, I've seen you like like every month like for the last three months josh yeah that's, that's pretty much been the case yeah <laughs> um for anybody who's wondering about the latest meeting we got together and uh I, uh, Adam and I went out to, to lunch and I took him to a little community that I affectionately refer to as Hillbilly Sedona, um, which is this community out here in Cobb County. It's nestled amidst a bunch of suburban sprawl, but you go down in there and it's just like, there's something odd about that place. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's, it's all wooded. It was a retreat community for a bunch of the well-to-do in Atlanta, but um, I'm convinced that if I dig a little bit, I'm going to find some strangeness there. There's an old uh, community hall that uh, at one point a Buddhist uh, meditation lodge had moved into. And on their website, the or the uh, the business has since shut down. But on their website, they claim that this particular community lay at the intersection of several ley lines. So I'm no. going to have to roll up my sleeves and, and get to know what's out there. But even just being there and without doing any research, like it definitely has its own feel at least i feel that it does yeah it was very nice and it's so close to atlanta and so close to kind of like that suburban sprawl like you say of like that uh 
Atlanta suburb area and you get over there and it's just like this wooded area that looks like you're like in the middle of the mountains or something. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's, it's a bit like sl- slipping over the line into Brigadoon. So I, I guess yeah. I'm going to play coy and not say the name of the community so that mm-hmm. people don't descend upon it. But uh, Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah. Right. Well, that's good. Uh, All the conspiranormal listeners that yeah. will descend upon this small community in in, uh, in the Atlanta suburbs of Georgia. We should have strange realities there, there <laughs> next <you go>. year. <laughs> Looks pull, like they got a space off. for it. Yeah. How far back does um people going to this place for wellness or... Uh, retreats, things like that go. Well, you know, that, that community center was uh, uh, sort of, it had a bar and a, uh, and a clink that they used to throw people into uh, if they got too rowdy. Um, I mean, that's, that's a term for jail, right? The clink, throw you in the clink. Um, but uh, apparently there is a healing spring that was frequented by the uh, Cherokee and Creek um, at one point there as well. So, like I said, just a lot of things that just sort of make me go, mm-hmm. you know, is there something else going on <laughs> underneath the surface of this small town? Magic Spring is definitely a, a good starting point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I said, we're going to talk about Ecology of Souls, some more of it. I think I had stopped with like chapter seven, I think the last time, I think is where we kind of we kind of left off. So I want to talk a little bit about the alter states of consciousness, because this leads us into the wider discussion. I think that chapter leads us in the wider discussion about like shamanism and some of the UFOs and near death experiences and all that. Um, so in this book, you kind of divided volume one was more kind of like a, a, a general type of, um, exploration of death folklore essentially and some of the fairy folklore and how it how it evolved is involved and then in the second book you get much more to the ufos alien abduction phenomenon and all that associated once more with death and folklore is that correct in saying that that's kind of how the book is set up i think that's very accurate i mean the second book was really the book that i wanted to write and then you know there are two ways i could have done it i could have stretch the content of the second book over it would have probably ended up being two books just for simple like physical logistical reasons but you know either you set up all that stuff in volume one so that you can reference it in passing as it applies to the ufo phenomenon or you write about the ufo phenomenon from the outset and you're constantly like having these giant digressions to explain some of these older concepts so this seemed like the the more parsimonious approach um but yeah, hopefully it makes sense why I why I split it and how I split it now <laughs> with the with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, volume two is a little bit longer than, than volume one, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, yeah, it's like 400 pages, something like that. So let's talk a little bit about like the alter states of consciousness, entheogens, the correlations to NDEs. And that kind of sets the stage with like shamanism, the idea of dying to death, initiation, all these type of things, which is something that's, I think, when we talk about Whitley Strieber here at the, probably the end of this episode, it really kind of sets the stage for the rest of the rest of the book, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, so, yeah, the, the the altered states of consciousness specifically. I mean, I focused mostly on entheogens and you know psychedelics, for lack of a better term. But, you know, things like dreams also play a role. So I gave some attention to dreams. And and I think that there's something to be said for the fact that some aspects of dreams seem very much like, you know, trips. Um, 
it's very common that if you don't wake up and write down your dream right away, you might forget it. I mean, a lot of people have that. I have that experience that, you know, not everybody has that experience, but a lot of people do. Similarly, some people have the same experience with their trips, especially when they take DMT, they, they come out of it and they'll remember it vividly. And then as time passes, it sort of fades from memory. Interestingly enough, um, in volume two, there are some alien abductees that use the same technique to remember their their experiences as well. They just would write them down in a journal right after they happen, and they would forget about it, and they'd go back and be like, oh, it, that did happen. <laughs> yeah, I wrote it down. Um, I mean, it's kind of like what Soraya talks about in a way, too, because he keeps a pretty fastidious um, account of all the things that have happened to him. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, but if you look at I – was, I was really quite surprised to find the number of entheogens that had some sort of relationship to death. Um, things like, you know, Ibogaine is often used to see ancestors. <clears throat> um, you've got, uh, I believe it's Datura, <clears throat> excuse me. I believe it's Datura also is used, uh, famously to see the land of the dead. And of course, ayahuasca, depending on the translation is, um, you know, the vine of souls itself. And it's the, there's an implication that you are contacting that realm of spirit, which, you know, the, the lines between other world and afterlife kind of tend to blur. But the the point is, is that a lot of people think that this does facilitate contact with ancestors. And that's an idea that Terrence McKenna sort of piggyback piggybacked on a little bit when he coined that term ecology of souls is that, you know, after he was thrust into the DMT realm, which has a lot of NDE um, pageantry associated with it, you know, you've got a tunnel, the descent to a a space that feels as if it's deep underground, which of course has, you know, relationships with fairies and alien bases and, you know, just the dead living underground or the dead living in mountains, as I talk about in chapter uh, eight, I believe it is. Um, And uh, he said, you know, one of the more conservative impressions that you get is that it might be indeed an ecology of souls and that this might be the same place that, uh, that, you know, the ancient practice practitioners of, you know, shamanic practice, which is a broad, vague, problematic term, but we're going to use it because it's just the, an easy shorthand. Mm-hmm. This is the same place that they would that they would go and commune and they would learn things. And I'm not sure if I said this last time, but according to, to Terrence, he turned a prominent Tibetan Lama on to use the, to the use of DMT. Um, someone told me, not sure how they knew or or anything along those lines, but someone told me that it was actually the Dalai Lama. Uh, had taken DMT with Terrence McKenna, I guess. That seemed kind of implied, yeah. Well, I mean, like, how many how many other Tibetan lamas are, you know, household names, which is basically right, what Terrence right. said. So, um, but uh, he apparently turned this individual on to that experience, and the response was in one of the immediate recognition. Oh, that's the farthest you can go without passing the uh, the point of no return. So that's when Terrence started referring to DMT sometimes as the bungee into the bardo. Um, so you have all this death imagery, uh, associated with it, but also if you look at, uh, the use of a lot of these entheogens in states of altered consciousness amongst indigenous populations, um, that provides you a unique, um, avenue into discussing again, those shamanic practices. I use the term shamanic to describe basically any sort of indigenous magical practitioners who, act as go-betweens between our physical realm and what would be called a realm of spirit. Um, you know, whenever you can, you should use the term of the exact culture, but when you're speaking broadly, we have to use these sort of clunky terms. Um, and, uh, you know, 
it's interesting. Uh, Mircea Eliade, who was sort of the authoritative figure in terms of Western uh, study of, of shamanism, a lot of what we know comes from his work to this day, um, believed that uh, the use of entheogens in states of, of trance was actually sort of a uh, a lesser means of accessing this state of altered consciousness. Because Eliade put quite a bit of, inf- of uh, emphasis rather on uh, epileptic fits and the way that they would be they would be used to contact the spirit world amongst these shamanic um these shamanic cultures and uh a lot of people have 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 found room to complain about that interpretation and and you know Terence McKenna was one of them uh because you know these these uh substances do seem to facilitate a similar uh state of mind and are indeed uh very much uh, an important part of a lot of these traditions uh, through the current day. But even in the absence of the use of these substances, uh, initiates into shamanism, uh, oftentimes selected by the spirit world through, you know, an accident like a lightning strike or, you know, equally often uh, her- their heritage or an intense illness. Um, they would always, their, their initiating moment would always be a, a trip to or, you know, you can argue beyond the threshold of death. And it's the exact same thing that we see with the near-death experiencers, right? You pass that threshold, and if you remember it, you come back with knowledge and, quite frankly, certain powers. And that's the same thing that we see in you know, the UFO uh, contact scenario as well. Um, but, you know, even when it wasn't a literal death, it was it's oftentimes a symbolic death. You know, some cultures don't use entheogens for their shamanic initiation, but they do you know, literally uh, bury their initiates alive and resurrect them. Uh, Maladoma Patrice Somay, uh, I can't remember his exact affiliation, but yeah, he's a he's an African uh, African medicine man himself. That was his initiation, was that he was buried until he basically lapsed into this altered state of consciousness and saw these shadowy figures around him and he had an out-of-body experience. And then he he was a full, uh, full-fledged uh, Sangoma, I believe. Um, so yeah, you see this, uh, you see this time and again, this, this, this motif of, of death and rebirth. It's just, it's, it's one of those things that was so persistent that it made me, um, that, that it really did convince me that it was worth splitting this thing into two books. It was worth pursuing all these different varied avenues of the paranormal and supernatural and alternative history and stuff like that. With shamanism, a couple things, the idea of like dying to death and then also this idea of this shamanic dismemberment and how that's very similar to some of the things that people experience in an alien abduction experience essentially yeah um no absolutely and i'm just looking at my pdf here to correct myself um so may was a uh dagara shaman and uh i got him mixed up a little bit with credo mutua who was the sangoma from south right. africa right. but um uh but yeah, you have this dying to death motif, and <clears throat> the more you look for it, the more you see it. And sometimes I wonder if that, ironically, is not maybe the point of life. If there is a meaning to life, to die to death is the meaning of life, which is appropriately, you know, mind bending enough. Um, but the uh, this is probably the main idea behind a lot of these ancient mystery cults, um, like the Eleusinian mysteries in ancient Greece, and uh, it certainly is what we see in a lot of these psychedelic trips, this idea that you have an awareness that the universe and reality is so much bigger than you that you really lose your fear of death. I mean, even at John Hopkins, they're using psilocybin for 
treatment of individuals with uh, terminal illnesses to sort of move them past that process of, of you know, pre-death uh, depression and anxiety. So that's part of that sort of dying to death model. But I mean, you know, arguably that's one of the functions of religion too, is, is to die to death. And, and what I mean by die to death is the idea that you move past that mortal fear that paralyzes us all from really living. Um, and that's something that you see all these times, time and again. Um, one of the studies that I leaned on heavily uh, for the UFO section was the uh, study uh, pioneered by Ray Hernandez, the uh, the free study, Edgar Mitchell's organization. It was a large uh, survey of, of individuals who've had various contact experiences with what are perceived to be non-human intelligences. Um, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are UFO experiences. And it was a very, very common uh, theme throughout those as well, that people who have UFO contact emerge with um, this sense that they fear death less um, because they realize that they're embedded in a far richer reality. So it's definitely a theme that that really, I think, might even be at the heart of the book. Um, as to the second point, the Shemite dismember, this is a, a really common motif that you see, you know, from the birthplace of the term shamanism. So we're, we're talking about, you know, Siberian uh, peoples all the way through, you know, continental Australia and even parts of the new world. It's this idea that the initiate is taken to the other world by some sort of spirits and they are dismembered and then reassembled back together again, better. <laughs> um, and, you know, a lot of times there's themes of decapitation, um, you know, in, in certain situations, especially in Australia, certain indigenous people believe that their shamans are taken by spirits and their eyes are replaced with crystals or there's a crystal put in their head, which sounds very much like the alien abduction experience. Um, but even if you turn to South America, people who drink ayahuasca, even, you know, contemporary sort of ayahuasca tourists will describe in some instances being taken into the jungle and taken apart by these little elves and uh, cleansed and put back together again in some of their experiences. So it's just such an, it's it's so close to the uh, to the alien abduction experience that I think that you really have to incorporate it into that you know that other sense of interfacing with this other world um, in a lot of ways, and uh, I think it ties in with some of the themes that come up in the epilogue regarding headlessness. Um, you know, the the only thing that sort of is a stumbling block for me in this is um the fairy folklore because you do see this dis dismemberment theme happening in a lot of near-death experiences as well it's not it's probably as much a a feature as the the tunnel experience because the tunnel experience actually isn't that common isn't isn't universal i guess i should say or or the life review the life review is i think maybe appearing in something like a third of cases i don't have that handy right now but um but the fairy folklore, you know, the dismemberment themes are largely absent, which is the only thing that kind of makes me puzzle a little bit, because obviously there's so many other congruencies between the fairy folklore and the alien stuff um, that I really just have to wonder why that component is missing. But, you know, you do have analogs for those implants with something like the fairy blast, which were these bits of, you know, glass or, you know, uh, dirt or rocks that angry fairies would place underneath your skin. So there's sort of a comparison there, but in terms of actual dismemberment, you really do have to turn to these indigenous traditions and a lot of the experiences that people have under the influence of, of psychedelics. Another common theme in that as well, having your body taken apart and put back together again. There's a, uh, there's a very famous example of uh, 
of Betty Andreasen. I'm, I'm not sure if you know that name. She ended up marrying and her name changed to uh, Betty Luca. But uh, Betty Andreasen had a sort of terrifying experience where she was placed in what uh, I believe, I'm kind of make sure I got all my facts here. Um, she was placed in what was something that resembled kind of a coffin. And she had a traumatic surgery where the aliens removed her eye and put in an implant in the empty socket and then replaced her eye. So you do have these other things that, again, sound like a spot on, you know, recreation of those older indigenous uh, myths. But um, the reproduction thing is really common, but there are also like lots of stories that really step outside the boundaries of what we know to be possible medically. Not to say that we couldn't accomplish these things at some point, but, you know, you had people talking about their hearts being taken out and replaced, you know, years before we had years before we had the success rate that we have now with, you know, heart transplants and stuff like that and artificial hearts. You had stories. So healing, that's something that crosses over into the shamanic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, uh, there's this idea that a lot of people who would come back might be in a daze for several days and then they would sort of just be improved um, in a lot of different ways, but also the shamans would, I mean, that was one of their primary functions as, you know, you know, as a, as a member of the community was to lead the spiritual progress, but also to be, you know, an intercessor um, with a lot of ailments that plagued the community. And, you know, in a lot of these cultures, um, things that we would recognize as just sicknesses or illnesses might represent things like soul theft by some sort of nefarious um, otherworldly being or something like, uh, the soul wandering away and not returning. A lot of times they were deemed to have a metaphysical source and the person that you would turn to would be the shaman. And, uh, you know, you can't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't sound like something that we'd be comfortable with doing today in our modern Western society. But at the same time, uh, I guess the proof is in the pudding. And a lot of these people would, you know, improve after visiting the shaman after their illness. So I don't know how much of that is, you know, placebo and how much of that is actual metaphysics and, you know, I, I don't know where, where you draw that line even to begin with, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, um, that was definitely part of one of those things. And, you know, I, I, sometimes when I talk about this book, it feels like I'm just saying the same thing over and over again, because there are so many congruencies. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, there, we do have stories of alien abductees who, you know, place their hands upon people, um, and are able to heal them according to what they say. And we're talking about people who have rather severe, uh, illnesses uh, cured. We're talking about, you know, things like cancers, if the people are to be believed. And in some of these cases, it seems like there might be a medical track record um, to sort of verify that. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Really don't know. I mean, but but similarly, you have people who come back from NDEs who have also See, this is what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. every time yeah. I talk about one thing, I talk about the next thing because it just... You hear it all the time, but there was um, there are some people who come back from NDEs, and I believe there was a, I believe in volume one I talk about a a uh, sufferer of uh, cerebral palsy, and uh, this individual was actually uh, under surgery for bowel cancer, and they had an NDE, and when they came back, they were able to use one of their hands for the first time in their life that they hadn't prior. So it's that theme again of returning from the other world, yeah, just better, <laughs> you know, regeneration, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I really think you could make like a Venn diagram or something with all the different, you know, modalities and how similar they all are. You really could. You know, one of the things that I struggled with when I was writing this book was like, well, you know, I kept on asking myself, is anybody going to want to read this? And the thing I kept on coming back to was, well, you know, I sure as heck want to read it. But at the same time, you know, the other thing that I was wondering was like, 
a lot of this, if you just take what's in there, you know, it's Kenneth Ring. It's, you know, Eddie Bullard who talked about the alien shamanic connection. It's the stuff that we've talked about in the community over and over and over again. And said there are these similarities, but I guess if ecology of souls does anything different, it puts it together and puts these things side by side, one another to say, look, it's not just, you know, abductions and, and shamanic initiation. It's not just shamanic initiation and psychedelic trips. It's, it's, it's not just any two of these things. It's, it's almost literally all of these things. Um, and yeah, you're right. The, the Venn diagram would be helpful because, you know, something I did find was each of these contact modalities would tick like five out of seven criteria or something like that. So it's not always consistent top to bottom, but it's pretty darn consistent and consistent enough to make me think that it very well might all be the same place that we're going to in these experiences. And of course, you know, the, the, the part of the one Venn diagram, which would have the least overlap would be the cryptids, but there would still be some overlap there. There really would. So moving on to a different theme, this idea that you posit called afterlife evolution. In other words, this idea that technology continues in the afterlife or that people, spirits or whatever, continue to evolve. They don't just stay static in the afterlife. There's some of this idea is from mythology and some of it is also from the literature. Yeah, it's it's a really strange idea um for us because we this is just not something that we think about um in in our in our modernized society you know the idea is that if there's something after you die you know it's either so far into us that we can't put a name to it or it's this pastoral paradise where you don't have to do anything the idea that there could be some degree of literally technological progress on the other side of the veil is just something that I don't think any of us really consider um, nowadays, but in a lot of these ancient cosmologies, um, you know, you would, you would find that the afterlife very much resembled our current reality. I mean, you see this a little bit with some of the indigenous tribes in, in North America who spoke about, you know, hunting grounds that would be very much like our earth, but even more specifically, um, it was believed in, you know, ancient Imperial China that, uh, at least one form of the afterlife was identical. It was like a mirror image of, of the empire, but you know, probably the most famous example is the Egyptian Tuat, which, which, you know, was, was a reality that you woke up into and you had to go to work and you had to go to the bathroom and you had to worship and you had to go to sleep and you had to eat. Like it was just basically life again on the other side. So this has led a lot of people um, to suggest over the years uh, that, Perhaps there is some aspect of the other side of the veil that would allow for um, that would allow for technological um, innovation. <clears throat> and surprisingly enough, um, surprisingly enough, it's uh, it's something that actually appeared in ufological circles relatively early. Um, you know. You can find some references in the 1950s um, to ufologists sort of playing with this idea. Um, and it's something that I think kind of fits the fits the bill for a lot of these talks of of uh, breakaway civilizations and whatnot. But um, it is a really old idea. And, of course, it makes sense that it would have appeared in Flying Saucer Review because you've got, uh, you know, the, the ufologists 
outside of America have often uh, entertained have often entertained metaphysical ideas a lot longer mm-hmm. than we have over here. Um, but yeah, it was, in fact, there was a 1957 uh, edition of flying saucer review where Arthur Constance said that uh, it may be that the shape of the human spirit, if it has any shape is that which we have come to associate with, uh, with UFOs. And there's some other people who've, who've suggested that uh, people who are significant enough engineers on this side of the veil might be able to go over there and construct something that is literally the UFO. Now, all this seems like a lot of, you know, pleasant, um, convenient speculation, but like, is there anything actually to it is the real question. Um, and if you believe Whitley Strieber, um, there, there might be, um, in a new world, he talks about this. And it's just, when I read it, I just had to like reread it like four or five times. Um, he claims that, you know, for anybody who's wondering, Willie has had this implant um, behind his eye that's given him messages over the years. It's somehow tied in with his late wife, Anne, who was the one who made the initial observation. This has something to do with what we call death. But according to Whitley, um, Late one night, he he woke in sort of a daze, and he was contacted. He met. He was met at the door by these two gentlemen, who showed him this like little typewriter, and they said that the messages that he was receiving in his eye um, would be typed on the typewriter, and that's how they were appearing. And he, you know, he he admits that he didn't really wasn't really able to make any sense of this because you know there didn't seem to be anything you know unique about the typewriter. It didn't seem to have any sort of transmission device, but um. They did tell him that the implant in his eye um, was the work of uh, Constantine Raudave. And uh, I think we might have talked about this a little bit last time. But uh, did we talk about this last time? It feels like we, we did. We talked about it when the what some of the question and answer stuff that we did with the, when we had you do the, uh, that's right. That's right. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I feel like I'm told Adam yeah, and Sir, uh, this. Metcalf and, and, and us talked about it, but that was in the strange realities presentation that you did. Yeah. So, so what I'm going to say is it's kind of wild and, and your mileage may vary, but, uh, Whitley was told that, uh, this technology had been invented by Constantine Raudave after he died. And it's an interesting, uh, claim because uh i don't believe i believe in, i believe in a new world whitley says he wasn't aware of who raudave was but the uh individual constantine raudave was sort of an evp uh, pioneer and one of his goals was to you know create devices to facilitate communication uh, between our world and the next you know electronic devices and that electronic voice phenomenon uh field and there are numerous recordings you can find them online they're really <laughs> They're really chilling where he has left supposedly uh, voices on the answering machine of one of his colleagues, Sarah Estep. And, you know, yeah, I've, I've heard that before. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're really creepy. Yeah. It's like, greetings, Sarah. This is Constantine oh, yeah. You know, it's, they're, they're really creepy to hear. But um, but it's just interesting that someone who was someone who is obsessed with making that connection through technology who has allegedly appeared numerous times in EVP recordings is also supposedly the person who put or who designed whatever is inside Whitley's head. Um, the world's most famous alien abductee, you know, <laughs> and then you turn around and you're like, so this doesn't have anything to do with death. Like how does, how does that work out? 
and and it's just it's just another you know throw it on the pile as something else that seems to suggest that there um not only is a connection between ufos and the dead but that mm-hmm. it literally might be a, a technological um a technological component in the sense that we would recognize it as technology and not to get to ancient aliens even though josh has been a guest on ancient aliens but you know in so many of those mythological systems these these messengers or the these other beings or gods are the ones who actually bring technology to mankind in the first place yeah there's sort of a promethean undercurrent to it you know um and i, I think that part of our problem is that we we don't really think of technology the same way that we have historically and that we should going into the future. You know, we don't think of fire as technology, but it is. And, you know, that was something that Prometheus did. I think Maui might've done that in some of the Polynesian uh, myths as well. But, you know, I would argue as, as some of my colleagues have that something like ayahuasca is also a technology. It's just not a technology in the way that we think of it with silica and, you know, metal bits and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you, you know, Graham Hancock believes that, that it's a form of, form of technology or at least a way of communicating how to make technology yeah and i and again i I would reiterate this like hopefully you can see why like (laughs) i blame you for this adam right because like i had asked you what my next project should be and i gave you a couple options you said you know write the one about death and (laughs) i was like it's good adam i was like okay well i guess i'm gonna do that and man i i hope that it's apparent why this turned out as big as it did because you keep finding this, you know, you keep finding this connection to death over and over again. It's, it almost becomes annoying because I was like, you know, please, dear Lord, let me get out of this in fewer words than I am. But it kept on getting bigger and bigger. What was the other option? Was it like the Loch Ness Monster or something? Was in- Well, I don't want to share them now because somebody okay. will steal my idea. Oh, <laughs> no, that's I true. Three-volume Loch Ness no, Monster I mean, book. I, I'm going to say this, and I, I, I don't think anybody's going to tackle it because it's, it's a little bit it's a pretty big project in and of itself, but I think that the field is long overdue for a, a 14 approach to missing time that folds in physics and, and some other stuff. But I just sat down and tried to wrap my head around it. And I just, I couldn't, you know, <laughs> partially you heard it here first folks. Well, partially the way that I think of compression and dilation are not, they don't line up with the way that those, what those terms mean in ter- you know, and astrophysics and stuff. So that was a big stumbling block for me. So I'm like, maybe I should just sort of step back. So instead, it, I so instead I wrote this. <laughs> this is the first few chapters of the of the second book. As you go along in the book, you're talking about how some of these UFO encounters and ghost experiences will go hand in hand, and how most of the time, there's well, I don't know most of the time, but there's plenty of times where people will have UFO encounters, and then all of a sudden, poltergeist activity will just keep up. I, I would say, you know, more than. Sometimes I, mean, I would yeah, say it's all, yeah, you could almost say yeah. that it's like a sign that you might have been abducted. Uh, you know, one yeah. of the prior to the uh, the free study that I alluded to, um, there was a study by uh, Kathleen Martin, you know, Betty Hill's niece, mm-hmm. um, along with uh, Denise Stoner, and they found that eighty eight percent of subjects reported increased paranormal activity at home following their abductions. Um, so, and this would be stuff that we would recognize as RSPK and other sort of you know classic poltergeist stuff in addition to seeing apparitions and stuff but also just mostly the classic poltergeist stuff so and i even found cases where people like didn't have missing time didn't report an abduction but you know just by merit of the fact that they saw you they started having poltergeist stuff popping off in their house right so it's very it's very very common much more common than even than even i thought 
Um, from that, what do you kind of gather about the common theme with, you know, this all having to do with death? Is it because that we're talking about something that's uh, ghosts being uh, human entities or, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think that when we look at the sort of suite of things that we call poltergeist phenomena, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the in fashion thing to talk about to make you sound sort of sophisticated as you say, oh, you know, it's some sort of prepubescent girl whose repressed sexual tension is manifesting, you know, poltergeist phenomena around her. And she's the focus and that's where it's coming from. But not only is that idea uh, fallen out of favor recently, the idea that basically anybody can, you know, exhibit this, this talent under significant mm-hmm. stress. Um, but I think that, you know, part of it is generated by the living and part of it is, you know, generated by the dead, because a lot of the things that we see with poltergeists, I mean, it was originally understood as being a spirit. And I think that a lot of things um, that you see in hauntings, not necessarily like the really poltergeisty stuff, like a ports and, and the and showers of stones, but like the stuff just about things moving and, you know, odd smells and odd voices they happen in hauntings as well. So I think it, we need to be aware that like some of it might be generated by the individual and some of it might be generated by what we would classically understand as spirits. But, you know, to sound like a broken record, this is something that you see after a lot of near death experiences, you know, uh, poltergeist phenomenon was phenomena was once blamed on fairies as often as it was, you know, spirits of the dead. Um, something that, you know, happened uh, with some of the people who saw Mothman, um, something that happens depending on how you look at it with the Bigfoot phenomenon. You know, that was one of my chapters in uh, where the footprints in was about, you know, looking at the Bigfoot phenomenon through that poltergeist lens. And it's something that happens uh, even to outside Western, uh, Western observers when they are in the middle of, uh, you know, shamanic trances. Uh, there's a famous story uh, about a Western ethnographer um, who was actually attending a, uh, an Ojibwe, uh, ghost lodge ceremony and uh, he was sitting there with the shaman and there were all these you know the basically the wind would pick up and there were spark like lights that would sort of manifest in the in the uh in the the tent and uh to his death um the shaman spoke with the ethnographer at the time and said that you know well sometimes we do sometimes we do tricks to make that stuff happen which is a very george p hansen thing right you kind of have to fake it till you make it and sort of coax this stuff out by by kindling the imagination you allow the imaginal to to bridge that gap but the shaman even told the uh the anthropologist as he died he's like but that time it was it was legitimate like it wasn't any tricks that i was pulling so you see you know the poltergeist stuff happening around those people as well um there's a really fascinating study by uh, david kittness and mario lukes david lukes and mario kittness <laughs> sorry i completely mixed that up um david luke and mario kittness uh that said that uh, 50% of regular psychonauts reported telepathy using psychedelics, a 36.5% clairvoyance, 21.2% precognition, and 18.8% uh, communication with uh, with the dead. Um, and they would also have uh, what could be referred to as, you know, poltergeist phenomena. Um, You're really not selling uh, psychedelics to people here, you know? <laughs> well, here's, here's, the, here's the fascinating thing. So they, they found that, uh, you know, Silas Sybin, uh seemed to have some sort of widespread capacity for generating these side events. There might have been a little bit more of a tendency for it to also occur with mescaline and LSD, but it was kind of the the psychokinetic stuff was kind of 
wasn't didn't really seem to be attached to any one um substance but what was interesting about that study is that a lot of these things that people ex- would experience these senses of levitation or telepathy or or, or precognition etc um I've read the study several times. I've had some friends read the study and we've all come to the same conclusion as what they're saying is that it seems like the psychonauts experience this on the natch more than they do while they're under the influence. So in other words, yeah, they experience that when they take the drug, but they also experience it more often (laughs) Mm -hmm. when they're just in normal consciousness after they've after they've been you know, sort of more or less recovered uh, from. So it entire- permanently expands their consciousness or at least for longer than the trip. It permanently expands their consciousness. And, you know, you can kind of graph that directly onto the UFO experience too, right? You know, after the alien abduction, after the experience, that's when all the poltergeist stuff starts popping off. So there's another concept that you're talking about in here about alien abduction and that experience as being its own kind of form of astral travel. Yeah, um, I'm. It's going to take a lot at this point to dissuade me. And, you know, interestingly, I've had this conversation with Ren Collier, and he feels this way as well. It's going to take a lot to dissuade me at this point from the notion that alien abductions aren't some sort of out of body experience that they aren't necessarily taking place in the physical world. Now, I have some caveats and some things to add to this, but. You know, the most common objections that you hear to that are like, you know, oh, well, why do people get, you know, wounds on their bodies after their abductions? Well, you know, look up stigmata. You know, I mean, this is something that you see time and again. You find it in werewolf legends, too. The idea that the soul would wander and an injury inflicted upon the werewolf would be mirrored on the human's body. So there seems to be some sort of connection between the spiritual and the physical in that sense. So that's one way to account for that. Um, Some people sort of want to, some of the more new aged uh leaning ufologists want to say well you know they they make a 3d clone of you in astral space and that's and that's wounds on that will mirror on your body and it's like well okay you're kind of you know gilding the lily a bit um i think it's just a more simple explanation to go back to those older examples um so that's one that's one complaint that people will have um but uh you know can you consider the number of abductions that happen after people fall asleep that feel like dreams and people question whether or not they were dreams. Well, maybe they were dreams and, you know, dreams are very much tied to those out of body states. Um, there are a handful of, uh, stories where people claim to have been abducted by aliens and then had an OBE. So in other words, they're like lying on the operating table in the craft and then they see themselves from a third person. That's some meta stuff right there, man. That's like, yeah, what's what's going on there? Astral traveling while abducted. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the idea that I sort of jokingly say is like, you know, maybe we're like Russian nesting dolls. Yeah. And it, that's two for the price of one of, of paranormal <laughs> experiences, right? Yeah, just, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, if, if, I mean, this is part of the reason that I ended up writing that first book is one of the things that I go at great lengths to discuss in that first book is this idea of polypsychism, the idea that you're not just one soul. So maybe, yeah. There was an astral component where you were in this astral space with these beings that were doing things to you, um, disassembling you. But then another component of yourself was able to see yourself. And it's it's a it's a Ooh. trippy con- it's a trippy concept, but it has yeah. some grounding in these older traditions. Um, yeah, which but I mean that's the Egyptian tradition, right? I mean you have the the ba and the ka and all these different yeah. I think the Egyptians uh, at one point speculated like up to nine different aspects of the soul. Um, and you know, we still talk about this to this day, you know, my head says one thing, but my heart says another, like we still, we still acknowledge this as a reality, even if we don't, you know, treat it as a, as a literal reality, the biggest stumbling block, because I've talked here on the show before about how 
people need to get out of their heads that things can either be physical or spiritual, mm-hmm. physical or mental. Like that's that seems to be a false dichotomy. Anybody who's wondering, take a look at ghosts. They don't seem material. They interact with the physical world. So let's get over the idea that people will see flying saucers and that they leave burn marks in the ground. That still works in this model of of, of abductions mm-hmm. being astral or out of body. The thing that's the biggest stumbling block that I don't really have a good answer for are these reports where um where cars are moved or levitated. Um and that's it happens often enough to be considered sort of a minor motif in the abduction scenarios. You know, people will report that their yeah. car is lifted off the ground and transported and they'll wind up at their destination with a full tank of gas. Um so how do you how do you fit that into um a model where these are out of body experiences? They even wipe your windows you- for you. <laughs> right right um but uh you know the only the only thing that i can come up with and this is some real mental gymnastics stuff but if you adopt a perspective that everything is in sold the idea that we once called animism right um then theoretically a car could have some sort of spiritual imprint as well i mean we talk about i gotta say having- my old school it's i feel like it's a, a living being sometimes well, I mean, you know, it, I mean, we talk about R. It's it's an idea of that your that your car kind of feels like an extension of yourself. Yeah, yeah, cyborg. I mean, uh, cars do sort of seem to have their own set of metaphysics around them. Like, you know, we talk about Christine, right? Yeah. But 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 there are. I mean, you know, what was it? A little was it little bastard that was? Uh, what's his face's car? Anybody know what I'm talking about? No, little <laughs> was, bastard. Was it James Dean's car? Little bastard. I don't I think know. It might have been. I'm gonna I'm gonna Google this right. I know Herbie was alive. Yes. Okay. I got it. I got it right. Yeah. James Dean's car, little bastard, um, was a cursed car that I believe people had subsequent crashes in after they purchased it. It was just a car that was just had bad mojo. So maybe there's something like that. That's that's the only thing that really doesn't nest very well for me, at least in this scenario. But once you go into reading these alien abduction experiences through that lens of these, you know, these uh, Monroe Institute stories, right? or these near death experiences where it's more like what's where it's more about the soul ascending. Mm-hmm. A lot of things make more sense. You know, the idea that you could pass through the ceiling of your house uh, without any incident, the idea that you're being lifted up out of your, you know, out of your body, you know, off your bed. You know, some people say that they don't see their body, but plenty of people say that they do see their body. There's a lot of stuff in windows, right? And then like you float off into this craft, but there's really no opening necessarily in physical Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, there's that, but also, you know, David Jacobs sort of noted a minor motif that uh, aliens seemed to be capable of, you know, phasing things through solid surfaces, but would still time and again, seek a window to levitate people out. And it's like, okay, well, if they can phase people through solid surfaces, why would they do that? Again, something that doesn't make sense until you look at this older, this older belief and a lot of the, you know, European medieval belief that the window was the ingress and egress point for spirits. You know, when someone would die, mm-hmm. you'd open a window so that their soul could get out. Mm-hmm. So it seems to maybe speak to it on that level as well. Um, the, the other, there's one more thing that's sort of, you know, one more thing that, that flies in the face of abductions being uh, out of body experiences. And that's, Cases where people are physically missing, you know, Travis Walton is a great example of that. The Allagash abduction uh, with the the Wieners um, is another great abduction, uh, another great example of that as well. People 
said they were there and then they looked again later and they were not there. So where were they if they were just, you know, in a trance or an out-of-body state? Don't have a good answer for that. Um, but I'd say that for me, most of the stories seem to fall into that sort of out-of-body rubric. Yeah, and I want to point out too that uh, Joe Jordan and his work, you know, that's more kind of like the the Christian aliens or demons type of crowd. But he's time and again has said that testimony from like spouses people that have that experience these things that those people are usually still in the bed but they're experiencing it in some other type of state well i mean and that would be well, consistent. i've heard that as well that would be consistent with these stories that you hear again you hear them in fairy literature you see them in ufo literature of what i call the uh the unwakeable spouse too like you know the person yeah. experiencing mm-hmm. something terrifying and they're trying to wake up their partner and their partner is just dead to the world um yeah. and i've heard just the opposite though too like with some of the people that joe has interviewed that are the spouses of these people that have been trying to wait and say like no when he said this happened he was there in bed with me yeah it seems to be the opposite of it as well so well you know that's that's the question that i have is that if you had set up you know a camera in a little cabin in Accord, New York, December 26, 1985, um, what would you have seen? You know, yeah, would you have actually you seen? seen something right. walk into the cabin, or would you have seen, um, you know, would you have seen just Whitley going into a trance state? So let's talk a little bit about some of these other aspects uh, before we kind of get into the Whitley Streamer stuff as well. We kind of touched on this about the shamanic experience that the alien abduction has a very, it's like a modern day version of this. Uh, and we also talked about the shamanic dismemberment. Those are two couple of things that we talked about. Uh, but these, one of these things you talk about is the guy in life previews. And you're also talking about the, you also talk about the, like the unpleasant alien abductions and how these are also kind of similar to some of the things that you see in NDEs and actual out-of-body experiences. So this goes hands in hands with what we've just been talking about. So, Right. So I guess I'll start with sort of the, the guy in life previews. And, and this brings me to something that is a concept that I sort of, I guess I picked it up from Patrick Harper, right? There's this wonderful moment in demonic reality where Patrick Harper says, to summarize it, he basically says, that the fairies are always going, 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 but never gone. He's referring to the exodus of the fairies that you can find, you know, as far back as Chaucer, the idea that the fairies are leaving this earth. And the ufologists tell us that the aliens are always coming, 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 but never here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that sort of beautiful inversion of that idea um, put me in the mindset of the possibility that inversion means representation and and what i mean by that the example that i use you know being a being a musician is that um if you have two pitches an a and a c and you have the a above the c when you're sounding the two pitches that's a major sixth but if you have the c above the a um that's a minor third and these are not these are not fungible intervals you know in terms of music theory like they're they're technically different intervals they have a different quality but the components are still practically the same, you know, even if they're displaced by octaves. So that led me down, has led me down the route of being able to, for at least me, reconcile some discrepancies that you see um, in some of these, um, some of these alien 
abduction scenarios, at how they look, you know, in terms of the Fey folk stuff. Um, for example, I've I've said that the indigo chi- indigo indigo kids, indigo children, um, star children, sometimes you hear them referred to as they're these sort of star seeds that supposedly the aliens have left with, you know, human parents. And I compared that to the changeling phenomenon. Even though the changeling phenomenon is is, you know, a complete 180 from that idea, it is a it is a 180. Like it's 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 the direct opposite. So in the changeling phenomenon, you know, the child is the imposter and it's negative. And um in the, you know, indigo child narrative, the the parents are kind of the imposters, right? The parents are the ones who don't belong and the entire experience is a positive experience. It's a blessing to be indigo child, right? Not saying that I necessarily believe those indigo child ideas. So I say all that to say that I use the term guy in life preview as a complete 180 from the near, sorry, as a complete 180 from the um, life review that you see in near death experiences. So it's the same idea. You're peering through time to the fate of something during one of these contact experiences and the near-death experience you're peering into the past experiences of the self whereas in a lot of these alien abduction experiences you're peering into the future experience of the collective right it's the exact same thing but the opposite and uh it's just a fancy way of saying that you know it's a fancy way of encompassing all the apocalyptic messages and and pre and, you know previews or or predictions and prophecies that people get when they are are, are you know in the in the UFO contact experience. Um, I think it's notable that these never come true, um, <laughs> which you know I I think uh, you know either some people would say that means that alien abductions are bunk. I tend to lean towards the writing of Emanuel Swedenborg, um, the mystic who said that you know never trust a thing a spirit says all the spirits are liars so that seems to you know explain why dates like 2013 come and go for the end of the world or something like that or a great cataclysm is going to happen by the year 2020 and you know i mean i guess we did have a great cataclysm in 2020 but you know what i mean like the uh the there wasn't a volcanic eruption that covered the world in darkness yeah um so you know so these things come and go and i think that's probably along the lines of what swedenborg was was alluding to so that's that's the guy in life preview and how I sort of make a comparison between that and the near death experience. Now you had said something else in that question that I have completely forgotten. Well, yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think what I was going to ask about the unpleasant alien abductions, which I guess the guy in live previews can be part of that. But uh, I wanted to add, though, too, like sometimes I think it reflects concerns that an individual might have Anxieties, or a group yeah. consciousness might have. Because remember, in communion, you know, uh, he's shown the image of the nuclear explosion that says... This is, and the voice says, this is your world, or, you know, something like that. And it's like, he had just written War Day, Strieber had. So it's like, this is already on his mind, an ecological disaster, and these type of things are on a lot of people's minds. So is it an actual preview, or is it something that is just a reflection of what's already in that person's And, and it, changes, it changes to match the anxieties of the era, right? Right. You know, so in the 50s, it was all nuclear holocausts. And nowadays, it's more along the lines of cl- things like climate change. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that speaks to, you know, at best, something that we're helping co-create at worst, something that's being deliberately um, manipulative. Um, but, yeah, the unpleasant abductions are something that I wrestled with a long time because I think the overall tenor of ecology of, stol- of, of souls kind of skews towards the positive. Um, but. At the same time, you talk to these people who have had these absolutely harrowing experiences and there's nothing, you know, there's nothing love and light about them. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the biggest issue is is one of consent in these things, right? Um, which they seem, these beings seem perfectly capable of asking for, but they never do. Um, there are a couple of ways to sort of reconcile this and, and perceive this, um, you know, the free study showed that negative abductions tended to um, be viewed in a more positive light as people put more distance between the experience and themselves. Sometimes uh, experiences would start out negative and then they'd grow more positive with subsequent encounters. The inverse happens as well. Can't, you know, can't dismiss that. Um, You know, as far as the issue of consent goes, um, if these are aspects of the self interacting with us, then, consent is kind of implied even if our ego doesn't agree with it uh, you know i don't know if that's really a good solution um the other answer that you'll find that you that you see from time to time uh is that you know consent gets overridden at vet appointments and at pediatrician appointments mm-hmm. and, you know because it's because there is an intelligence that knows that the outcome is beneficial even if the experience is unpleasant so that's another way that you can look at it it's for your own good well you know and so you can so you can sort of make all these apologies for for that uh for these unpleasant abductions but at the end of the day you've got to say well look if if this is somehow a reworking of these ancient shamanic ideas you know it would be disingenuous to say that something as negative as soul theft doesn't exist and that was something that 
was one of the chief duties of, of you know shamans they would track game and predict weather patterns and all those sort of you know mystical duties but they would also you know escort the dead psychopomps another connection there um but they would also retrieve souls that had either wandered off or been you know uh abducted by malevolent forces so maybe maybe that's what these negative abductions are are, are these sort of soul thefts um but you know as far as the negative abductions positive abductions thing goes um i guess nowadays i fall more into the positive camp even in the light of some of these negative experiences and i guess I guess that's just because I'd rather be hanging out with John Mack and Leo Sprinkle than I would like to be hanging out with David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins. You know, I mean, it's just at the end of the day, it's like one set of these people has a much more interesting and, and nuanced view um, mm-hmm. than the other does. You know, Right. Well, and a lot of this stuff kind of transcends our value systems. So, <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. You know, it's something I go into at, at, in the, in the afterward. I had a, a friend who was like an old counterculture guy from from late 60s 70s who he told me about one of his most epic uh, psychedelic experiences and how i was asking him man was it was it bad was it good he said man sometimes it's not bad or good it just is man <laughs> yeah I, I love that i mean it kind of reminds you of those stories of of you know the the drunks who survive tornadoes because they weren't like fighting the tornado <laughs> and so they wind up in a field completely unscathed because they were loose and just sort of went with the ride i mean yes yeah, so so in the afterward i kind of let all my walls down and, and talk about my personal feelings along this journey and one of the things that i say is is that you know one nine times out of ten the things that we fear in these encounters is is death right you know it's and if death isn't the end, if death isn't something necessarily to even be avoided in the grand scheme of things, if you've been here a thousand lives, then like, is that really the worst thing? You know, um, there, there are, there are, I believe, fates worse, worse than death. And the examples that I use are, you know, things like, you know, hurting loved ones or, you know, not, or squandering opportunities like those things, I think are a lot worse than, you know, Bigfoot smashing your head in with a rock in a lot of ways. That's a good way to go. <laughs> it's a cool way to go, you know. <laughs> you get to be written about by David Politis, I guess. So speaking of the dead, uh this is very important. So the this these encounters of the dead in alien abduction encounters themselves. And the idea that ancestor spirits and aliens in some cultures may not necessarily be different from each other. The original plan for this was to go down to Rice University and sift through as many of the letters that were unpublished that the streamers received as possible. Um, you know, the pandemic obviously put a put a hiatus on that, and I wanted to keep on writing. So I found quite a few examples of, of the dead seen in alien abductions, and those got shifted to the companion, which is available either as a PDF on my website or as available as a physical copy. Um, and I have three appendices talking about, you know, during abductions or around the time of heavy UFO contact, people who see dead people that they know, loved ones, friends, relatives, etc. Um, dead people that they don't know that they find out about later. Um, there's this really interesting, um, there's this really interesting story of a, uh, an abductee in Massachusetts in 1963 who uh, was taken to this crystalline city several times. And at one point she met another um, 
abductee who told her her name was um i believe it was uh something swinson ingrid swinson was her name and uh the abduction researchers discovered that ingrid swinson had just died in in uh south dakota just a short time earlier so the implication is that maybe that's who, who she was meeting um the abductee claimed no interaction with this person so that's an example of like the dead who weren't known to to uh the abductee but i, I put as many as i could find short of going to that to that archive and i think i found enough to sort of illustrate that it is it is a trend you know it's not something that you say happens even often but it happens enough that it does suggest that there's some sort of link there so that you know for the longest time was one of my go-to answers for why people ask me why i didn't think it was aliens i'm like well you know you've got the, these parallels between near the experiences and the shamanic stuff but also you know dead people show up now to your point about the entities themselves um this was the problem that uh people like cynthia hind initially ran into when they were talking to indigenous african populations that's a problem that we still run into today is that um when you ask them about aliens from outer space a lot of them don't have stories and that doesn't mean that they haven't seen ufos and that doesn't mean that they haven't seen ufo occupants it's just that they don't think of them that way and this is a bigger problem that i see with ufology as well i mean when you filter everything through the extraterrestrial lens you automatically select against cultures that just don't view these experiences that way you know mm -hmm. um so Cynthia Hines started asking about ancestors and about spirits, and she got tons of UFO encounters. And, and a lot of what we know about UFOs um, from, you know, the southern portion of Africa um, comes from the work of Cynthia Hines and the people that she trained. Um, and there are plenty of stories. And in these stories, you find something that you also find in a lot of uh, indigenous, you know, myths and folklore here in the U.S. is that they're isn't always a distinction between ancestor and occupant and craft like these mm -hmm. these these parameters sort of meld and mix and match a lot so you might see a star or what appears to be a structured craft in the sky and you would say you might say that's you know the ancestor traveling but you also might say like that's just the ancestor <laughs> like they decided to look like a ufo this day um you know there's a great story that already six killer clark co collected from the american southwest of an indigenous informant who uh spoke to a one of the star people and then the star person like dropped to the ground turned into a tiny glowing orb and then rejoined several other glowing orbs to become a ufo in the sky and then took off so that's sort of really illustrative of the fact that like these distinctions between craft and occupant mm -hmm. and if they are the dead just really sort of have very little meaning um but to that end if we are going to talk about occupants um you know there are stories of people who encounter the dead um manning the controls of these craft um the researcher scott corrales went so far as to speculate that something literally like plan nine from outer space was happening like the aliens were reanimating the dead and pressing them into servitude um but i think a more interesting approach would be to say you know well what if something about the gray alien is a fundamental form to which we return you know if, if there's this reincarnative cycle that would almost make sense, right? You turn into a gray and then you come back as a fetus, which kind of looks like a gray. <laughs> and then you sort of develop out of that as, as you're born and, you know, you progress out of those, you know, infant features until you die. And the whole thing starts over and over again. Um, and, you know, uh, it sort of begs the question, you know, if ego does get stripped away, if individuality on that level does get stripped away after we pass on, which a lot of different traditions say, then it 
kind of makes a lot of sense that it would be, uh, you know, a space, whatever the UFO is, mm-hmm. filled with a lot of, you know, practically identical drones that don't really have distinctions between one another. Yeah, I think a lot of this has to do with um, the fact that to so many of these traditional peoples, like the heavens and space is equated with the other world or the afterlife or all these things are just synonymous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at sort of the places where the afterlife or the other world has always been situated and it's under the sea, you know, on the other side of that mountain range across the ocean or, you know, in the sky. And and there's a lot of conflation. This, this really breaks my brain. Um, There's a lot of, you know, even in classical cultures, um, they would view the portion of the night sky beneath the ecliptic as, as the underworld, right? Yeah, because that's where the sky goes. It goes over underneath the horizon, then it's the underworld. And so to descend to the underworld, you've got to ascend to the sky. It's just, it's so counterintuitive for us. But again, you find this in, you know, amongst Native Americans as well, this idea that to get to the, if you want to sound sciencey about it, the portal to the underworld, right? You actually have to traverse the Milky Way, you know, to pass along the Milky Way. Um, to get to that point in the sky, and that that would give you, take you to the afterlife, which might be depending on the cosmology and underworld. So, um, I mean, the, the, and and I think that like if we look at ourselves having mapped the entire world, um, more or less nowadays. Um, I know the oceans are a big question mark, and there are parts of certain rainforests that we probably don't have a good idea. But more or less, we know that there's not like you know an afterlife here on earth. I think we can say that with some certainty, but what happens to all those beliefs and hopes and fears? Like, what does that get transposed onto? I would argue that it gets transposed onto the night sky and uh, you know, the UFO is such a transportation obsessed phenomenon. It's all about where do they come from? Where are they going? How do they get here? You know, those are always Mm -hmm. the questions that get asked, right? And a tra- anything transportation-based, you find time and again across different cultures, is typically viewed as a means of conveyance to the afterlife. I mean, we talked about psychopomps on the last show that we did. Um, but, you know, almost all these psychopomps are about transportation and navigation. Cultures yeah. universally believe in horses, which could take you places that you couldn't go before horses. Birds can access parts of the world that human beings will never be able to access because they can fly. Dogs are best friends, which, you know, can lead you um, in times of trouble. They have better senses than human beings. Even animals that don't fall into those categories that are psychopomps often have qualities that make them expert navigators. Like some cultures thought about bats as being, you know, psychopomps as well because they could, you know, quote unquote, see in the dark. So, of course, the UFO is a variation on that transportation theme. And I would argue, as sort of Carl Jung mentioned in passing in his essay on flying saucers, that you could view the uh, the UFO as a reinvented psychopomp boat symbol. And, mm. uh, you know, our, our earliest our earliest coffins that you find in parts of the world, especially in the, you know ancient China, were literally like boat coffins. They were boats. Um, you find this in island Southeast Asia a lot. Think about the, you know, the Norse burials, either sending someone out to sea in a boat or, you know, more commonly, um, these stone ship burials, which were either burials with actual ships or, you know, burials in a ring of stones that was shaped like the hull of a ship. Boats are death symbols. And, you know, these boats were transportation to the other world. And I think that the UFO, you can make a very good case, is a reinvention of that trope because it takes you to it's 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 a device that takes you to another 
place that we cannot access normally. So the greys are, are our modern ferrymen across the dark river sticks. Yeah. And you know, there's, I mean, I don't know. This is, I play with a lot of different ideas in the book, but there is a section in, in, in part two, um, volume two that, um, where I, I, I sort of go through different psychopomps and say, mm-hmm. you know, the qualities of this psychopomp were seen in these cases and the qualities of this psychopomp were seen in these cases. And, and you know, occasionally you'll find some really, um, some really interesting coincidences where, uh, where the, the actual names, the specific names of these things get mentioned. I mean, so for example, y- y'all are familiar with the Wednesday phenomenon, right? That John Keel talked about. Yeah. I don't know if it bears itself out, but Keel felt that UFOs were more often to be sighted on Wednesdays. Well, Wednesday's the middle day of the week. It's the liminal day of the week. Wednesday is this day of the psychopomp as well. Odin's day. Now, Odin was a lot of things, but he was also a psychopomp. This is also reflected in the Spanish name for Wednesday, Miracles, named after mm-hmm. Mercury, right. the Roman reinvention of, of, of Hermes. So Wednesday is Psychopomp's Day. Like, it's just how how poetic is that, that UFOs happen to appear on Psychopomp's Day? That's, uh, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things where, like, you know, sometimes when I was writing this, I'm like, am I, is this what it feels like to lose your mind? Where everything starts <laughs> to, like, fit together so well? Is that actually what this feels like? You know? Right, right. Well, what else is it about? If it's not about uh, what we call life, then... Um... The other side that was something that 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 barbara um that barbara fisher who edited the the book got on me after all was said and done she's like you know it's not really about about death right i'm like yeah i know it's about the cycle of life and existence and just the soul in general but you know i guess i get away with it by saying ecology of souls like the emphasis is on you know souls so right there you have it well let's get into streber so the, when we were talking the other day, I told you, this is the chapter that I want to get to and I want to get, get at least that read. Cause there's still, I still have two confessions, still have 200 more pages in the book to read, but I'm going to finish it. Uh, because I think it is, I do think it is an important work. Not acceptable. Adam. Right. Right. Exactly. So hey, you know what? You y'all are the book report. Y'all are the only ones who have had me back for round two. So you guys are, are, are troopers. I appreciate it. Yeah. Good. Cause there's just so much to talk about. I mean, honestly, we might do a round three. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. But, uh, so Streber, you know, you, you bring up a good point about Streber and I kind of want to focus on that. The Streber really is filling this kind of shamanic role now. And you go through kind of this progression of how he gets to that point and what you know there's what happened to him and then there's how he evolves over time to what he thinks the nature of this phenomenon is yeah i mean in some ways it was the most difficult chapter to write because you know whitley i don't think he is responsible for this sort of connection between UFOs and the dead. I mean, obviously I wouldn't have been able to write what I wrote if there wasn't, you know, more of a connection there, but at the same time of everybody alive to this day, he has written about that connection more than anybody else who's around. Um, And I sort of found it interesting that if you take a look at um, 
If you take a look at the titles of his books and you just sort of step back and you put them in chronological order, right? Because he wrote Communion first in his, you know, personal autobiographical stuff, but he wrote then Secret School, which is about an earlier portion of his life. So if, if you take a step back and you look at just even just the titles and the subject matter speaks to these as well, um, it sounds a lot like the initiate's journey, right? You've got the secret school, um, which is his basically his childhood election to the spirit world. Like we were talking about shamans, you know, oftentimes at an early age, they would be drafted by the spirit world to be the intercessors with the community. Um, you know, communion is initiation. Transformation is him struggling, and you start to see him changing and starting to accept some of the stuff. Uh, breakthrough is realization, and, you know, confirmation is acceptance of that role. And you can see... You know, the metaphysics were there in Whitley's stuff from the start, but it definitely ramps up with, I'd say, the last two of those titles. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he sort of positions himself in more of an advisory capacity to the reader, if that makes any sense. Um, so as opposed to just sharing the strange thing and trying to figure out what it is, it's more about, um, you know, giving giving uh advice spiritual advice and you know a great example of that even though i didn't include that in that sort of list is is the master of the key because it wasn't you know really autobiographical it was it was an experience where he uh sat down with this little old man in a hotel room in toronto and just basically got had a had a <laughs> had a, like a several hours long ask me anything with this character who was giving him all this spiritual information um you know, it, it reads very much like a channel work. Whitley says it isn't channel, but it reads very much like that. And, you know, the idea that somebody who was approaching this from the extraterrestrial angle would, well, he, he always entertained the fairy folk and some other more esoteric ideas from the beginning. But the idea that someone who was sort of introduced to this predominantly through extraterrestrial lens, the idea that they would end up writing something like the key um, is quite the change. Um, and since then, you know, like he has written so much about death and the visitors that uh you know i ended up having to leave some stuff out you know i just wanted to copy and paste everything that i could but but i had to leave but leave out some stuff because he's just written about it so extensively but the idea of him as being like a shaman that he's embraced this role and we should also add Anne and you know, it's kind of her influence and then her near death experiences as well in there and how he feels now that Anne, even though she's passed on, that she's still with him and all these experiences that uh, that he has had. Yeah, I mean, Anne was Anne was a profound influence on his life. I mean, I think he wanted to title the original work Communion. He wanted to entitle it like Body Horror or something like that. And she uh, basically spoke to him in this voice that was not hers one night and said that, you know, you have to call this communion because that's what it is. It's, it's about the meaning of the other. Um, but yeah, Anne, um, I would go so far as to argue that Anne kind of accepted that role um, a little bit more readily than, than, than Whitley did. Um, you know, she did have a, a near death experience and then uh, passed away Um a few years later, I believe it was something like 10. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but uh, it was one of those things where it's almost, um, you know, they, they wrote uh, the, af they wrote, uh, uh, they wrote, I believe it was the afterlife Re revolution together, but even, um, no, so sorry, they wrote miraculous journey together, but they also wrote the afterlife revolution together 
after she passed away because she was such an integral part of of that uh of that experience and like apparently she just started visiting him right away um and to a degree this didn't really surprise whitley because he had experiences with the dead in these contact scenarios on multiple occasions um even from the beginning in communion he uh saw an old friend who was i believe um involved in one of these three-letter agencies and he wasn't aware that this individual had died and as it turns out he found out later that they they did die um so yeah so right after her passing uh he ended up having some experiences with her um and including you know a lot of communication that came through this this implant in his eye um and uh you know her her near-death experience is interesting in its own right you know she recalled um you know a very poetic scenario which again tracks on to these themes that we've talked about in her near-death experience she wound up in a uh, in a subway um subway station and there were a bunch of people coming and going and it became apparent to her that the people who had the most uh the most luggage would not reach their destination um and it was their their dead cat co who actually um sort of escorted her through the afterlife now cats are not the strongest of psychopomp symbols um you know it's not like a horse or a bird or a dog appearing but at the same time the idea of a pet and you know an, an animal that has a long-standing spiritual association with it um it is interesting as well yeah well i mean you know and, and, and cats were considered sacred animals by some by some cultures as well ancient cultures Especially the Egyptians. I mean, you know, there's there's an equation equation with a, with a deity, with cats too. So, so right, right. But but that specific like guide of the dead role, right, you don't see, right. You don't see as as often. And I'm sure that right. there's somewhere, um, there's somewhere that you can find a psychopomp, a square, a culture where cats are treated as psychopomps, but they're not travelers. So I mean, and it, it, it since she's passed on he now has this idea that she has sent him messages i believe you mentioned like the moth in the on on the camera thing uh you know and and, and there's also this belief that he's she's constantly with him if not like a complete part of him now too yeah the the moth thing the moth thing is something that you know at first blush it's like well you saw a moth but um well starting in 2016 he would uh get a notification on his home alarm system with the camera whenever there was movement and he would either be speaking about or thinking about um Anne, and this moth would appear on the camera app you know he'd get a notification and he'd see that there was a moth um you know on one occasion he did find a dead moth i believe on another occasion he he didn't um and uh you know at one point he was speaking with his son about their mom and the moth popped up and uh there was an event in February of 2018 uh, at uh, Esalen and he was there with Jeremy Vaney and uh, a white moth appeared and literally just landed on, on Jeremy Vaney's head. Um, But the moth itself is a potent symbol in its own right. Um, There are, you know, I mean, psyche uh, has some connections to, to the idea of, you know, the butterfly, um, but uh butterflies in some capacities uh were regarded as another psychopomp you find this in uh 
in some Mexican cultures where you have the uh, where you have the migration of the monarch butterflies coinciding with the the Day of the Dead. So there was this idea that oh, the you know the, the souls are traveling with the with the butterflies as well. But um, you know, it's again it comes back to that idea of a small winged creature being a symbol for the soul. So it's 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 entirely yeah consistent, I guess. And of course, the the transformation uh, and metamorphosis within those. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the, the, the obvious thing that I didn't mention. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> One of the points that you make in that chapter that adds some credibility to his experiences is that he really he really suffered a lot. Um, his career really suffered after like he was on the verge of becoming like probably one of the the you know the new Stephen King or whatever or that or that type of writer and when he made the decision to write this to write communion to tell what happened I mean he did receive a lot of ridicule and his like career's kind of never really been the same never really been the same since so he like it really changed his his trajectory well well the argument that I would make too I mean, you know, there's that, and you know, the people who want to detract from him say that, you know, well, he he made a gamble, and it was a bad gamble, right? Um, but my other my other argument, my counter argument to that is, uh, you know, you read his pre-communion books, and and they're tight, you know, um, there aren't the same amount of loose ends and uh, ideas that are picked up and quickly dropped as you run into in a subsequent output, some people might say that he lost his, his touch and that he's still fabricating, but I'm, I'm like, you know what? This guy knew how to write novels and he knew how to write things with a consistent through line and with payoffs and setups. And, and that just, that's absent from a lot of his communion and post communion output in this capacity. You know, when he's come back to novels since then, they still have that, that, uh, I guess not orthodoxy, but they still have that conventional uh, flavor to them. And his, his autobiographical stuff does not, um, which to me says that he might be wrestling with this stuff as much as the rest of us are. Besides the obvious, I think of, you know, that the whole thing is based on what Anne said about this, having to to do something with death. What made you want to do an entire chapter on streamer? Uh, because there was so much there and I didn't know where to sprinkle it in other ways. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, yeah. it's just, but also like, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like writing a book on gravity and not including an Isaac Newton chapter yeah. or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's, he's been so formative. He's made such a big impact on the culture, the modern UFO abduction motifs. And that is coupled with this weirder, more spiritual stuff that has to do with death. Yeah, and even if you know there's some mythologization around him as a, as a character involved in this angle on the phenomenon, um, that that still deserves its own place as well. You know, if you're trying to be comprehensive about this topic, it's just you know just make it a Whitley Strieber chapter. Um, and so that was that was that was part of it, just because you know I go through all my books and I for the longest time I was like just eyeing that that Whitley portion of my shelf and being like oh god i gotta get through this because i knew it would just be like drinking through a hose um so i just put it all in one place and tried to sort of organize it as chronologically as i could uh because you know as i said secret school came out after communion but it take takes place before communion and uh 
he didn't talk about his implant until I believe it was confirmation. So you know, you're kind of skipping back in time with that as well. And then trying to bring it as, you know, as up to speed as it currently is about the way he's thinking. Cause that's the other interesting thing about him is that he, he doesn't really, he hasn't been like, you know, in a damn who's like banging the same drum over the years. Like he's always changing and evolving in his ideas. Um, some people criticize him for that. Yeah. I, that's too. just not the way that that's not the way that my view of the way that we should be behaving as human beings works. Like when somebody adapts yeah. and changes their opinions, like I think it's a healthy thing, but, um, or, you know, or at the very least is a sign of someone who isn't sure of, you know, what it is or, or what's going on. I mean, there are some things, there are some minor controversies here and there with typos and with, um, there was a subsequent reprinting of of the key uh, because there was a claim that shady forces had interfered with the first publication of the key. So there's some stuff that, you know, um, there are some inconsistencies that crop up that have allowed people to sort of pounce on as well. And, you know, I, you know, you have to acknowledge that as well, but, um, but he has sort of evolved his thinking and in his current thinking in a new world is that, a new world is, is is vaguely predatory in a way that his perspective on the visitors really hasn't been since transformation. Like there are parts in transformation where he talks about basically fearing for his soul, like the idea of soul eaters, like, you know, the, the Egyptian goddess Amet, you know, the lion hippo crocodile hybrid that eats your soul. Like that, that's what's worse than death is having your soul eaten. And he played with that idea in transformation and he sort of, return to something a little bit more predatory in a new world, which you just released uh, either last year or a few years ago. I can't recall which. Um, and he he does play with the idea that these are things that, honestly, their behavior kind of sounds like those hungry ghosts of Eastern tradition. Like they want to experience living um, in this reality. And sometimes our ability to do that draws them to us. Very interesting, Josh. Is there anything in the next few chapters um, that you would like to kind of just mention? Oh, you mean my favorite chapters of the book that you haven't read? That's right. Favorite, <laughs> cha- favorite chapters of the book. Look, we'll probably have to do a part three. I'm, I'm totally down for that. The, the the chapter that follows that one is is what I lovingly call the Jeff Kripal chapter, and that's the, the Soulcraft of UFOs. And it's that one and the Monuments chapter in book one that are probably my, my two favorite um chapters and uh you know you've you've seen me give the presentation on on the soul craft of ufos which basically boils down to we've always thought of the soul as a light a lot of ufo sightings are lights um you know a lot of anomalous lights have been death omens doppelgangers are death omens which are oftentimes perceived as an aspect of the self exteriorizing in a lot of these older traditions so are ufos doppelgangers and is that why there's this association between anomalous lights and predicting deaths um and that's a very young idea um there's a lot of young in that chapter um talking about the circle being a symbol of totality um a lot of the symbols that aren't a lot of the shapes that aren't circles that you see in the ufo literature uh have some sort of death symbolism attached to them uh you know if you you compare them to a cemetery iconography you can find a lot of overlaps um there's that (laughs) there's that famous picture that i use in my presentations that i just adore of the two circular bits with the long shaft in between um that appeared uh at a farmer's at a farmer's wake in zimbabwe and like you, you throw it up 
on the screen and just it always gets a chuckle because everybody knows exactly what it looks like but the point is is yeah. that it's a phallic symbol that appeared at a farmer's wake in zimbabwe in the sky so like there's there's obviously some sort of like death rebirth symbolism there you know fertility rebirth symbol fertility death symbolism there you know between the timing and the shape of the thing um do you reprint that in the book I, I did not reprint the image in the book no um although uh greg bishop has made a shirt of it uh, which is also available on tote bags so <laughs> nice um and then you know I, I have two chapters that talk about uh aliens as the other so the idea that like uh the idea that um they might be psychopomps um the idea that they might be extraterrestrial ghosts um and uh in in some ways uh well i, I also talk in that chapter about the the close association between psychopomp animals and uh the ufo phenomenon i mean people have wondered what the connection between owls and ufos is here's a possibility you know, owls being a, a death symbol and a psychopomp symbol and birds being a psychopomp symbol more generally. Um, but also, you know, there's two other famous psychopomp characters, horses and dogs, um, are things that pop up in the UFO literature from time to time. Um, you know, people forget that the first modern documented livestock mutilation was a horse, right? And uh, was it Zippy? Zippy the Snippy, horse? Snippy, Snippy the horse. Yes. Yeah, appropriately yes. enough, right? Um, and uh, the horse has just always been tied to death. Um, you know, people were royalty were buried with horses. Horses were a symbol of royalty to the extent that you know sometimes they were believed to pull the chariot of the sun across the sky. And so you can kind of get into an academic mindset where horses, the sun and circular glowing objects in the sky are sort of all interchangeable, you know, as symbols on a symbolic level. Um, in that you've got to talk about aliens and demons, um, and that sort of whole rigmarole. Uh, I, I tried not to go as deep into that as I could, uh, because it's been covered elsewhere by tons of people. And I just don't necessarily agree with it. You know, despite being a Christian, I, I think that there's, I think that whatever this ecology of souls is, is, is a lot more complex than just, you know, the good guys versus the bad guys. I think there's a lot of free agents in between, but also exploring the idea that, you know, some of our earliest concepts of demons were that they were the evil human dead. Um, and they of course blended over with the fairy stuff as, as, as well. And then, uh, you know, the idea that aliens, there's another chapter on the idea that aliens might be ourselves. And that's where I really explore the idea that these are projections of the self, um, maybe an aspect of our souls. Um, and there's a, a lot to unpack from that. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm literally just going through the PDF and telling you everything. The cryptid chapter um, is the longest chapter uh, in the entire two volume set. Um, but I mean, some of the some of the connections are pretty obvious. Um, Mothman and uh, and death is, you know, they go hand in hand. And of course, Mothman, we just talked about moths as a death symbol, but also birds as a death symbol. One of my favorite like maybe one of my favorite things that I found out in this book though um, was about lake monsters. Cause I really haven't had a chance to write about lake monsters, but um, lake monsters have a lot more high strangeness associated with them than we, than we appreciate. But the thing that really sealed the deal for me with them as a death symbol. And of course, you know, you can look at dragons as death symbols and whatnot um, is the fact that lake monsters have always been associated with logs and, uh, 
to the extent that, you know, not only do skeptics say that lake monsters are logs misidentified, you know, my, the, one of my favorite explanations is that decomposing logs at the bottom of the lake pop up and that's what makes it look like a lake monster. <laughs> but also in, in a lot of, you know, Native American uh, folklore, the lake monsters could literally become logs. Uh, you'll find this in places like Switzerland as well, if memory serves. So lake monsters, again, are interchangeable with logs. And what are logs? Logs are arguably our first boats. You know, before we decided to make them into boats, it's what we use to cross rivers. And then when we decided to make boats, they were, you know, dug out canoes, right? They were logs. Um, and the boat, of course, is, you know, a death symbol in and of itself. And Jung uh, spoke quite a bit about the idea of Totenbaum, the idea of, you know, the, the trees being a symbol of death and end of life as well. So there's some real resonance there that I find, um, I find extremely compelling. Uh, so talk about that. And I'll talk about men in black. Uh, Barbara wanted me to make that the last chapter of the book. And I'm like, I got more. I'm sorry. Um, so the final, what I initially intended to be the final chapter turned into an epilogue and it's on headlessness. And, uh, it was the opportunity for me to, like a lot of this book, address some things that just didn't make sense, some outliers that I couldn't reconcile. Like there's this famous case of this couple returning from Salt Lake City and they have a flat tire or something, some car trouble, and they see a UFO and then they have like uh, an RV or a camper that pulls in front of them. And as they go to pass it, none of the drivers inside have heads. <laughs> and it's like, what do you do with that? Um but when you start looking at headlessness as a theme, um, you start seeing some really interesting things that I just sort of go back in reverse order through all the chapters um, and address. And it goes all the way from the number of decapitations found at these monuments um, to the T-shaped pillars that go to Beckley Tepe that look like headless uh, beings to the headless right. Um and you, I eventually find my way to cephalophores, which are something that I had no idea I loved as much as I do, but I, I do now. Um, and they're the saints who continued to speak or preach after they were beheaded. And there's a funny, there's a funny artistic problem when you're trying to depict a cephalophore. Where do you put the dang halo? You know, so like some of them have it like where the head was, some of it have it around the head that's being held in the arm. Some of them do both, but that was a light bulb moment for me, literally, actually. Um, because when you start looking at halos and what that symbolizes, it does seem to symbolize, you know, some sort of inner light, right? You'll find halos around some depictions of draugers, the the, Nor the Norse uh, revenants, the Norse zombies, um, and who were best killed by decapitation or a shot to the head with an arrow. So it's like literally the zombie, but like they would have halos as well. So halos aren't necessarily a sign of divinity. It's almost like they're a sign of just the inner light, which we all possess. And if you start looking at halo shapes, a lot of them are just classic UFO shapes. Mm -hmm. And so, so what I sort of come around to, to try to tie a lot of this up with a bow is that like, that's, that's a lot. That might be a lot of what we're seeing is just the release of this inner light. You know, if it's, you know, mostly symbolic headlessness, right? That death being, you know, sort of headlessness of itself, but also the, the metaphysical headlessness, the idea of um, losing the ego, the idea of, 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 of symbolically losing your head is something that you see in a lot of these psychedelic trips. And it's something you even see in the near death experience literature too. People will say that they're um, what's the word that they use uh, disincorporated. 
And that means that they mm-hmm. see in 360 degrees. So it's the idea of this liberation of consciousness is what that headless motif I feel getting outside of your head. About. Yeah. hundred percent. So, and then there's an afterward where I'm like, okay, I guess I'm a bad Christian. <laughs> um, because I, like I said, I let the walls down and I, I, I try to just as much for myself as for the reader explain like, you know, how do I, uh, how do I navigate this and what implications does it have for my faith? And, uh, you know, I, I've had some people tell me it's the best, the best written portion of the book. And I, I kind of have sensed that because it was just like, I finally got to let all this stuff out and just be like, what, what does this, you know, what does this mean um, for me personally? Uh, so, yeah, it's sort of like, it's like my apology and my, my current go-to credo in terms of how I try to incorporate this into my own faith, which it's walking a knife's edge, and I realize that, but I, I try. I, I think I make some sense of it that, again, just like the whole rest of the book, works for me. Well, very nice, Josh. Uh, that was my monologue. Thanks, everybody. That's it. Yeah. That, and I want to add, too, that's the Soulcraft presentation. Yeah. Uh, if you guys want to see that, that is on our Patreon. That's on the $10 level. So, But there's a lot of other presentations on there as well so hopefully we'll uh, be getting back to those strange realities monthly presentations yeah we should be i think in january we're gonna start start that back up again and uh josh has been part of that in the past um which reason we did that because he wasn't gonna be a strange realities and ended up being at strange realities so which which was great and we want to thank you for for uh all the help yeah yeah all the help that you did and uh also just moderating the panel at the end of the night the panel that i that was that we had to organize the night before last minute panel. No, I mean, you know what? I just, I, I, I said this and I've said this before, but I, I mentioned this on the car ride home with Tim Renner one time. I was like, you know, Tim, I said, we're both musicians. And I said, the people that I meet in this field are so much nicer than most musicians. I know. And he agreed. Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. And, and y'all are just, uh, you know, both, both of you, um, hold a special place in my heart in addition to everybody else who my friends with that I got to see again. So I, I, you know, I will not make the same mistake twice. I will not miss another strange realities for the world. Oh, <laughs> that excellent. Sucks. excellent. Thanks man. Cause there will be a 2023. Well, there will be, it will be happening at some, at some point in 2023, we haven't set a date or anything, but we will just stay tuned everybody. All right. Well, Josh, uh, just let us know what is next for you. What is there going to be another book by Joshua Cutchin? Well, you know, I think I said this to you the other day, and I've said this to a couple of people, but, you know, I could just walk away right now. Um, you know, I never want to write anything this long again. Um, and I keep trying to distance myself from some of the ideas that I put forth in Ecology of Souls, because as we alluded to, like, I like the idea of someone who evolves their thinking, but so much of it just works for me so i could step away but i'm not going to step away um because there's some 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 lighter things uh that mm-hmm. i want to explore here and there so i'm i'm currently working on a project i'm currently technically working on two projects in a lot of ways um one is a collaboration with barbara fisher and one is a collaboration with tim renner i decided to uh search for both topics as i go back through my library as i always do when i start a new projects so um not only do I have help, but they won't be as long as Ecology of Souls. So that's what's next. And I'm sort of picking away at that as best I can in between some other stuff that I'm doing. Do you have difficulty um, writing small form things? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I, I, I've been, I've been doing some, uh, I've been working on some YouTube scripts and, uh, there the baseline is like 4000 to 5000 words a piece and i always go in being like i don't know i'm going to squeeze blood from this turnip turnip and uh i always end up being like oh i have more to say than i <laughs> than i need to so yeah i think that maybe i do and i it's not even like i don't necessarily think that i'm not eco- economical with my language it's just that i think i always feel like i need to explain a lot of different facets of something and you know when i write i try to provide a skeptical interpretation and some context and you know Mm -hmm. maybe why you should believe this person or not believe this person i try to be as holistic as i can and and that's something that will lead you into extra tens of thousands of words very quickly (laughs) if you don't shut that off so i'm going to try to exercise some more restraint in the future but this is off my chest so that's that feels good awesome all right well on that note uh thank you josh for being on and you're going to stay with us for a little bit of a patreon we're going to talk about the concept of the wild hunt so you guys uh, stay tuned for that as well but uh it's been an excellent show uh i want to thank josh for for coming on and we mentioned our patreon Sergio can tell you where to find that you can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal uh, where you can join one of the many secret orders of which Joshua Cutchin is a member of the International Association of Conspiranormalists, the Mystic Crew of Conspiranormal, and the Ancient Circle of Strange Realities. Uh, that is at patreon.com slash conspiranormal, where you can check out this uh, follow-up conversation we're going to have here tonight with Josh. All right, and join us next week. We got uh, Josh's sometimes compatriot and co-author Timothy Renner is going to be joining us to talk about uh, his new podcast, The Flower Path. We'll see you next time on Conspiratorial. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.